0: Thank you. And welcome back to the Thousand and One Arabian Nights podcast. I'm your host, Houston Rifai. And I'm your host, Obana Rekabi. So, uh, we're picking up from last episode where we discussed the Nabataeans and their culture. Or last episode, so to speak. Uh, we kind of got, uh, let's say, carried away.
1: <laughs> well, it was necessary for that.
0: I, I know, but like, uh, we were planning one episode. We ended up with three. It was great. Yeah, I don't know, uh, know, but I think, I think
1: the people needed to hear... A Give, give some credit to the Nabateans. I
0: think it was our best episode so far. Oh, yeah, for
1: sure, for Episodes. sure, for sure.
0: Anyways, let's move. Uh, so now we're going to start uh, moving northward with our focus. Last time we were discussing the Nabateans and their importance to Palestinian and Jordanian history. Now we're going to talk about the origin points of, like, a Syrian identity, which is not purely Arab in this case. Uh, just as the Nabateans have their origins with... Uh, with uh, ...are the origins of the Palestinians and the Jordanians. For the Syrians, their origins are a little bit more mixed. And uh, one of the defining beginning points, really, is the story of Zenobia and the Palmyrenes. It's the this, this story of how this culture that began to develop in this time period resisted the Roman Empire and that story has continued to be an important part of the series identity up until today and was reimagined in the 20 in the 19th and 20th century as like an origin point
1: I guess it's a it's a it's a pretty important point in culture where it's like she's probably represented as a symbol of um, of resistance no, resist, against, resistance against imperialism a, or a against, western power specifically exactly yeah so i'm guessing she's a she's a big big source of pride for syrians exactly and uh,
0: we'll discuss it later but she's uh, like she's on the money she's got a big statue on the coast of syria you know the the classic nationalist kind of deal you know um so yeah so today's topic of course is zenobia as you would know from reading the topic And it also covers a period of time that we are going to call the or has been known as the crisis of the third century in the Roman Empire, a massive generation long, basically uh, cluster F. And (laughs) and this is a key part of something also that we call the Roman Iranian Wars, which was 700 years of conflict between the Roman Empire and the Iranian empires.
1: No, back and forth, that's that's uh, and it was usually they usually fought around where Palmyra is where exactly. Zenobia was.
0: Not exactly. Well, we'll explain a little bit more, but uh, but to to sort of like wrap up our intro together. Um, what she means for the Arabs specifically is in the same way that what she means for the Syrians. So she is a very important part of Syrian history, like uh, but maybe not necessarily the Arabs as a whole. Like, for example, before we discussed this topic, had you ever heard of her?
1: Honestly, no, not really. Exactly. She's not, we, we don't, re, it's, she's not really discussed in Arab history. She is only as part of
0: Syria's discussion, because like yeah. i have talked to Syrians, she's a known quantity. There are certain ones who are like, she wasn't an Arab, others are, she was an Arab, you know, but we'll then, get into that. But, but then
1: when you want to, but usually when you talk about Arab history, most people usually refer to the Jahiliya, to the Bedouin tribes, to like the poets, the warriors in the Arabian Peninsula. Zenobia isn't part of that sphere, so she usually gets left out of that discussion.
0: Exactly, but keep in mind that like, in terms of Arabs as a nation, especially in the modern sense, that doesn't actually come from the Arabian side of things. It comes from Syria specifically. So Syria is the key nation that was part of the Arab nationalist movement. As my professor says, it is still the most pan-Arab of all the nations, as one of my old professors says.
1: Well, yeah, 100%. I mean, if you just get to look at the stars on the Syrian flag that's kind of what it was it's a, it's a union between I think Syria and Egypt
0: yeah it's, it's hearkening back to that union which we'll we'll get into in a future it's, it's, episode yeah, uh,
1: especially with uh, familial history I'm not
0: going to mention too much plus but, you got
1: like many many pan-Arab movements coming out from Syria in the 1920s and 30s
0: exactly uh, and a big part of their reimagining what it meant to be an Arab is to include these non-Arab influences and how it's more cosmopolitan than that um, and Along with talking about this important part of uh, of the history of Syria, we're going to be talking about the city uh, from which once uh, uh, Zenobia came. Palmyra is still one of the great cities of the classical world. It is one of the most beautiful uh, ruins in the world. It's an amazing place. And obviously, it's been uh, damaged by recent events, by, yeah.
1: uh, by Daesh, you know, by, uh, by ISIS, but you can still... Now you can't, but... Up until recently, there, you could have went and visited and just see the ruins and just admire the, the beauty it, of the city.
0: It's one of the great uh, tourist spots of Syria prior yeah. to the war. And uh, the Syrian government is putting in quite a few resources to actually rebuild it, which is uh, at least a good thing. It's,
1: it's a good initiative, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, and additionally, she is she is mentioned in the Arab history as well. She is often conflated among Arabs with the Queen of Sheba and the stories of that because these are the grand, glorious queens of the past. And for Westerners, she's often compared with uh, Cleopatra, especially the Romans like to do that as well. So she has a very important place in the story. But regardless, we're going to get into the actual topic of the episode today. Um, so... It's part of a bunch of themes we want to kind of cover real quick. Um, one of the more important ones is the Arab migration. As we explained in the previous episode about the Nabataeans, Arab tribes seeking better land and opportunities would constantly migrate northwards into the Levant and uh, Mesopotamia as well. We haven't talked about that yet, but we will. Uh, so they would constantly move north into better lands. Uh, the camel, which uh, kind of became popularized around the, the first millennium BCE, uh, was key to this whole thing. It it helped fill this niche, uh, and made the the land more economically viable. You could you could graze animals, and you can additionally move goods further along. You know, yeah. uh, And it, it let them exploit the semi-arid arid land for grazing and easy transport.
1: And and you can actually find records of um, of their migration. By just looking at what the people that the Arabs interacted with, as to what they refer them, right? So, for example, around the Syria region, they refer to the Arabs as the Tayids. Why? Because the particular <coughs> Arab tribe that migrated there is the Tay tribe, mm-hmm. and then the Saracens is the same thing. It's yeah. the Saracen tribe. So, based on these, not based on these names. You can kind of tell, okay, like okay, exactly. these are interactions with the Arabs. This is because mm-hmm. that's who they refer them by.
0: It's like how the Germans are referred to as different people by whoever they like put into contact with, like exactly. Uh, uh,
1: it's adopted by
0: uh, the German is the Roman word, and it was adopted by let's say uh, the Greeks and the and the English. In French, they're known as the Alamang for the Alemanni tribe. In exactly, yeah. The, they're known as something different in Poland, in you know in in among serbians amongst the uh the other germanic people call them dutch which is more the the native name for them but regardless um saracen is interesting because that's what most westerners would have called arabs right up until maybe the late 19th century
1: yeah and it's and it's it's partly due because of um contact with a saracen tribe
0: exactly So I actually didn't know that was the origin point, Uh, might look into it a little bit more later. But regardless, uh, to get back to the sort of trend we're talking about, the bilingual culture of the region uh, really began to develop in the first millennium BC. So like Petra, Palmyra was a bit more bilingual. Whereas Petra was more on the Arab side, Palmyra was more on the Aramaic side. So there's a majority Aramaic culture with a minority Arabic influence. And we see that with Zenobia's story as well. She was an Arameanized Arab. That yeah, was makes her family. sense. Yeah. So yeah. her tribe became a noble family in Palmyra uh, over time, which is an interesting reversal of the fact that most Syrians uh, view themselves or are more clearly viewed as Arabized, Arabized. Arameans. Yeah. You know? Okay. Arabized Arameans, yeah. Exactly. Um, so let's discuss a little bit of what Syrian antiquity was. So the historian Peter uh, Brown proposes that the crisis of the 3rd century divides uh between the classical antiquity and late antiquity so this is a very clear point and we have to talk about what syria looked like at this time and uh, this is a pre-christian majority christian syria this is still a pagan land uh at this point after this point it would be increasingly a christian place so this is like the height of the pagan classical world uh uh syria by this point period was long since a defined entity like for a long time syria was just a collection of different cities here it became sort of like the defined entity a roman province with its own specific culture um there were large minorities of christians jews armenians arabs greeks and iranians uh its main city was antioch which was one of the three biggest cities of the roman empire it was Also kind of like a weird Greek island surrounded by uh, other great cities, which were more Aramaic influence. So like among those cities is uh, obviously the cities of Damascus, Aleppo. And in this period, Homs, which is known as a mesa in this time, was a very uh, important trade hub. And it was like sort of like the anchor point for Palmyra between. So there's like desert between Homs and Palmyra. And but it's the closest city along that route. So they were like sort of sister cities, you know. And it's going to be an important point later in this story as well. Uh, but obviously, there's many great cities, and the Gre- and they were sort of like the halfway point between Palmyra, the Euphrates River, where the trade was coming in from, and the coastal cities where it would trade out through the Mediterranean world. So that's sort of like the geography of what we're dealing with. Um, and obviously, there's like that bilingual belt along the desert's edge where yeah. Palmyra exists. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and Palmyra exists between uh, the very fertile and like people don't really think about this but like Syria is a very fertile country along its coast uh, Lebanon is a very fertile country and at that point Lebanon and Syria are sort of viewed as the same entity not to get controversial with that but regardless that's that's the way it works and like then there's the Euphrates River where trade continues into Mesopotamia and between those two points there's only one city
1: that you have to go through and that's Palmyra um, because in between those two points, it's just a desert. Exactly. You got the two, the two, um, the two fertile, fertile lands and then exactly. right in the middle is the Syrian desert. And, so and the on.
0: trade route goes straight through it. So in Arabian legend, uh, it, it said that the, it was built by, uh, the, the city of Palmyra itself, uh, was built by a genie for the great King Solomon ages and ages ago. That's the legend of local people who exist there today in a town uh, that's called Tadmor, which is actually the original name of Palmyra. So Palmyra well, it's, is like it, a Western. Name.
1: It's still it's still the name today for uh, in like in Arab circles Tadmor. Tadmor, but that's actually the original name. Uh, Palmyra is
0: just the name that the Greeks and Romans gave it. Um, so Petra itself is pretty small, as we discussed. It's actually only about thirty thousand people. Uh, it's in an improbable location. That's why it's so impressive but uh, Palmyra is like a much bigger sister. It had at least 200,000 citizens in the city itself and many more in the oasis surrounding it, similar to how Damascus is set up, but in a more stark and uh, like you come out of the desert and you're just surrounded by this beautiful oasis. And these great, like, column cities, you know, like a great yeah, yeah. Roman-style, Greek-style city.
1: I can, I can imagine it, actually.
0: Exactly. And, like, even today you can get a sense of it because of how much is still there. Like, even the great columns that run the whole length of the city is still there. The great baths are still mostly there. Like, um, Syria as a more stable country would be a wonderful place for any uh, ancient history nerd to go to because of all these great ruins. Um I'm going to quote from uh, something called the Historic Girls, uh, stories of girls who have influenced history in their times. It's kind of like an antiquated history uh, that talks about Zenobia in this case, uh, but it has very nice flowery language. So I'd like to, to pull a couple quotes from it to give a little bit of flavor for the time. Um, <clears throat> to quote from it, a large caravan might have a thousand animals bearing the burdens of trade between East and West with sturdy white donkeys from Palestine loaded with supplies and heavier loads piled on one-humped dormitory, camels, of Arabia. Silk from China, cotton from India, precious stones from Ceylon and Burma, pearls from Mesopotamia and Bahrain, incense and myrrh from Arabia Felix, Yemen, copper, gold, silver, ivory, scents, cosmetics, spices, rare woods, wild creatures, eunuchs, and slaves, were borne one plodding step after another, over hundreds of miles of desert. In Zenobia's era, the destination for much of this commerce was Rome, the heart of the Roman Empire, where citizens had an insatiable appetite for the best the world had to offer.
1: That's, that sounds beautiful, man. It's
0: actually, again, that's why I pull in the quote. It it gives a good flavor for for what we're dealing with. It does, yeah, no. It kind of
1: makes you want to be there at that time just to see, like, wow.
0: Exactly, and these, uh, the Tribes that used to live in the area became the great families of Palmyra and they, through their connections, controlled the trade that ran east and west. And what's important to remember is that this was a semi-independent city-state allied to Rome. This was not, like, it was part of the Roman province, but it was kind of like an autonomous piece of it. They ran their own system, they considered themselves a functioning part of the empire, but with special rules. So, like, their citizens were senatorial like the, the, the highest ranked citizens
1: were senatorial class it's, it's um, I wonder if it's kind of like the Nabataeans a little it, bit although the Nabataeans I would see them a bit more distant than that They in like the relationship with Rome
0: by this point the Nabataeans were like a full on province
1: Like they were just ruled. Yeah, but I'm talking about just who they before, prior to that, just their relationship with Rome was probably.
0: It was more distant than this. This is more like a very close partnership. It's more like uh, the way that uh, certain countries in NATO act with the US. It's a very close partnership, but you don't really own them, you know? Okay, yeah. It's It's more like that. And they consider themselves part of like the same sort of cultural world. And they were very much against the Iranians that were rising in the East. And we'll get to that in a second. Palmyra was just uh, a confed- uh, was once just a confederation of Aramean tribes and some Arab tribes as well. And over time, they became like this sort of city-state uh, system. Uh, many citizens, as I was saying, had the rank of Roman senators, including Odenathus and uh, Zenobia. They, were, they had the rank of the sen- senatorial class, which meant that they were really high yeah. up and they, yeah. they could intermarry. And they did intermarry with uh, the Severan dynasty, which was a dynasty that has origins in Emesa. Uh, So like the Severn dynasty of Rome was one of the ruling families. Over time some of these like outside families became like they intermarried with Italian families and became like these Roman class uh, like groups and they would eventually like through military excellence and like coups and stuff actually rule Rome. So over time the provinces started to rule Rome sort of, yeah. So, in terms of its culture, Palmyra was a mix of, like, at the top level, the, the senatorial people, as we explain, like, these, like, top level people. They spoke Greek uh, Greek as a language, and they considered them sp- themselves part of this Roman citizenship sphere. Uh, the general population was Syriac, or Ar- uh, Aramaean, kind of interchangeable ideas. Yeah. Um... Identities. Yeah, exactly. It's basically the same identity. Uh, that was like the main body of the population and the native language of most of the uh, ruling class as well. But they spoke Greek as well. Uh, Zenobia herself uh, spoke very poor Latin that's mentioned in there, but she spoke and read Greek. Uh, Mesopotamian and Arabic culture was also mixed in there, even within the city. Uh, especially outside the city, Arabic culture was a major factor. And the tribes were allied with the uh, great families. So it's, it's sort of like this very cosmopolitan mishmash going on there. And all the while, this commerce is what's really bringing in the money. And it was a really, really rich city. Um, and even after the Romans took it over, uh, like after her whole story, it continued to be a major city, even during the, uh, like the Arab conquest and stuff. It was a major city. Uh, it was only really laid waste to and made like a, a backwater by uh, one of the great... Uh, uh, Enemies of history, uh, Timur the Lame, Tamerlane, who like burned down uh, the Middle East in one fell swoop, like more so than his uh, Mongol ancestors. Well, we'll eventually get to that story, but uh, in the fourteen, in about fourteen hundred, he was destroying most of the great cities of Syria at the time, and Palmyra was one of the great uh, cities destroyed. So, <clears throat> just to to wrap things up there, um, that's sort of like the the background of Syria. Now we, we're talking about this wider period of time uh, that we call the Roman and Iranian Wars, which really defined how the geopolitics of the world of the Middle East worked for seven hundred years, right up until the period of uh, the rise of Islam and the the Arab conquests. Yeah,
1: no, this is exactly. So, it's it's uh, seven hundred
0: years of conflict. Of conflict. Damn. Um, to to make this as short as possible, basically. We're going to go back to Alexander because that's like the anchor point for most of our audience. Like Alexander conquers everything that the Persians had conquered. That's like the middle, like the broader Middle East history. He conquers everything. When he dies, it gets split up between his very successors. One of which is the ancestors of Cleopatra in Egypt. There's a couple ones in the West with the Greeks and the Macedonians and the Western Turkey area. But the biggest one, the big chunk of the Persian Empire is taken over by something called the Seleucid dynasty and they were based in Syria and they called themselves the kings of Syria and they built Antioch which was the main city so they they built this massive empire that stretched from like half of turkey all the way to afghanistan and pakistan today that whole period that whole range of space was theirs iran iraq syria all of that was theirs but over time it kept shrinking down for like 200 years all the way until there was just syria itself and then it was taken over by the romans but this whole time, they're sort of getting eaten up on both ends. From the west, it's the Romans coming in. And from the east, it's the Parthians. Or the, like an Iranian group that we call the Parthians. Or yeah. they call themselves the Parthians. Anyways, horse archer Iranians. Think of that. And they're coming in. And eventually they meet right where the Euphrates River is. And for the first couple of decades, they're very peaceful with each other because they have other issues to deal with. But the first war that starts is uh because of a guy known as Crassus. Have you ever heard of him? Yes,
1: a little bit. What do you, what do you know about Crassus? Well, he led he led a few wars, hasn't he?
0: Yes. So yeah. this guy is very famous in Roman history. Think of him like uh Caesar's sugar daddy. See, Julius Caesar's sugar daddy for a while. Yeah. He was uh he was one of the wealthiest men in Rome through very illegitimate means. Like for example, he had like this thing where he would Hire a bunch of slaves or like buy a bunch of slaves to like put out fires, and then he'd light fires in rich houses to and then force the guys to pay out for him to like fix it, like to put out the fires, that sort of thing. At least that's allegedly,
1: let's say. I'm a trickster. Yeah,
0: but he became really rich doing it. Um, he also used this wealth to like lead an army to put down Spartacus's rebellion. You know what's yeah, 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 the slave yeah. rebellion under Spartacus. He was the one who put it down, among others. Um, and he was Caesar's sponsor as I said he was uh, the guy who uh, helped Caesar's career out at the beginning he funded it for in large part and uh, he was part he was the third person along with Caesar and Pompey who were part of this triumvirate and once he became part of this triumvirate he got command of Syria and that's what he really wanted because what he wanted to do was take over Syria and then conquer the Parthian lands because Roman general like Roman politicians wanted to be generals to conquer shit and use that conquest to enrich themselves and make themselves more powerful at home. So that was his game. And the real prizes were in the East. That's where all the money is.
1: Yeah. You, uh, they were trying to, use, um, they're trying to use war for PR kind of thing. Really. Exactly. But also to raise money. Because you
0: capture slaves. You capture booty. You capture land. It's a wonderful way to make yourself rich. Especially if you win. Uh, specifically if you win. If you lose... Well, uh, we find sure, out yeah. what happens. I mean, when, because... because
1: generals are usually uh, held in like really in in you know in high regards. Exactly. And so they so that's that's what that's that's who people voted for most of the time. Exactly. Because they bring in glory, they bring in money. Exactly. And it's just you know it's just good uh, business. Pompey was the one who conquered Syria
0: in the east. He conquered a bunch of provinces Rome. And Caesar conquered Fran- modern France in yeah, Gaul. Gaul. What crassus wanted to do was finish the conquests in the east and become like he wanted to like he was felt insecure he was richer than the other two but he he wanted to really elevate himself especially towards the end of his life he wanted
1: to be remembered exactly
0: but not to get into his story too much yeah basically he uh marches his army through northern syria gets ambushed by the parthians who were horse archers who brought camels laden with arrows to keep shooting at the the romans so all this time they just kept getting shot at shot at shot at they can't even drink water they retreat they get massacred he get his son gets killed he breaks down crying his generals are like okay we surrender and they hand him over (laughs) oh my god like it was a major military disaster for the romans one of the worst they ever suffered they lost their they lost so many troops tens of thousands they lost their eagles Many of those troops were actually taken as slaves to Iran. And that's a whole different story. People like think they escaped and went to China. There's a lot of really cool history here. That's all tangential to this. He, he, he st- honestly, he should have stayed humble. Uh, he should have stayed home. Let's put it that way. Yeah. But this is what began the 700 years of war. This guy's stupid move. And uh, the way he dies is actually parroted over and over again. Supposedly, what they did was they melted a bunch of gold and poured it down his throat. Uh, to see if he could eat the wealth that he he had earned. Now, this is what the Romans say happened because they want to make it all poetic and stuff, but probably didn't happen. But it is like a it's like a Game of Thrones kind of thing. It is pour molten gold gold yeah. down his throat as
1: execution. No, it is it is it is a fun it is fun to think about a little bit. Damn, it's kind of a metaphor in and of itself. Yeah, so that's the
0: wider uh, that's the beginning of this wider conflict where. The Roman Empire and the Iranian Empire sort of went back and forth. The Parthians mostly kept to themselves. Uh, but in the early 200s, uh, the Sasanians take over and they, um, they start being more aggressive. Like they actually want to conquer Syria and, uh, and Anatolia and Palestine. They actually want to take over the old lands of the Persian Empire. Um, but for the most part, what they're, are, what they're fighting over is the border. The border kind of shifts between the Euphrates River and the modern border with Syria and Iraq. So it's like tiny, like pretty small piece of land. Yeah, that it's fighting not over. that big. It's it's. Um, but it's valuable for trade and strategic, you know, geopolitics. It's around where Dera is. Exactly, they're yeah. fighting over that. Like just that, really. Like they're fighting. Like they keep like one side might win and go sack Antioch. The other side might win and go sack uh, the city Tissaphon, which is the Persian capital. Um, but this. But yeah. And in the north, they're fighting in, in Armenia between the tribes, like they're pitting tribes against tribes to try to like win in the
1: mountains. But this was going on until at some point they they um, they started to engage other Arab tribes to do the the fighting for them. Exactly. I mean, this on, is where you get the, on the southern flank
0: on the southern flank.
1: Yeah, this is where you get the Lakhmids and the Hassanids.
0: Exactly. So there's like kind of like a middle flank, like the middle where the armies actually fight each other. That's where the real border is. There's the north where the Armenians are being fought over and they're fighting tribe against tribe. The Romans sometimes fight up there. And then the southern front where the Arabs are fighting each other. So they like they extend the war further and further out geopolitically to try to keep like getting around each other. And this goes on for hundreds of years and it just never ends. <laughs> like every generation, every twenty years, they're having a war.
1: You know, uh, not to get not to go too much off tangent, but it reminds me a little bit of what kind of what's going on right now between Iran and the United States.
0: You could try, kind of. It, it's kind sort of, of like a perpetual war kind of idea,
1: you know, where they're fighting over Syria, uh, each trying to gain some influence in Syria, either through the rebels or through the government, and it's just. The same place. Exactly. It's the but, same place, and they, and, so, and, they're, and they're pitting one against the other. Exactly. All right. Right? But again. But this, this is just a little tangent that I had in my it's head. Like, we got to keep moving, or else this is going to be another three-parter. No, no, don't worry. Don't worry. We're going to get right. to the story final, of Zenobia herself.
0: Final background. So, the crisis of the third century is like one chapter in this story. So, like, the Eastern Front is one of the issues that happens with the crisis of the third century. So, as I was explaining, at the beginning of the uh, 200s uh, AD, the, um, the Sasanians take over from the Parthians. Like, they overthrow the Parthians. And they become a much more aggressively... Uh, the Parthians were, like, hands-off kind of rulers. They like to, like, leave the provinces to themselves. And eventually one of those provinces overthrew them. So the Sasanians take over, and they're, like, the great Iranian empire. Like, they, they're considered almost as great as the Achaemenid empire of Cyrus the Great. And they, their kings, especially Shapur uh tried to push the empire west to the mediterranean again like one uh, like in the days of old and so they were pushing really hard on the romans on the east and on top of that the romans had a series of disasters just a series of disasters the germans in the north started to come down more and more and they constantly had a turnover of leadership there were like 30 emperors in, a, in one generation uh, like It was like two or three years each. This
1: is is not good at all for... No, no.
0: Pretenders constantly, civil wars constantly. They had two major breakaway empires. So like Gaul and Britannia broke away and as part of that Spain as well. And in this part of the story is the East broke away with Zenobia. So at one point it was a complete disaster. Like it looked like the Roman Empire was going to fall apart. And it all started uh, when this guy, uh, Alexander Severus, who was actually a, of Syrian descent, uh, he was his family were like martial generals, but he himself was kind of a nerd. Uh, his story is interesting in generally, but uh, he eventually tries to make peace with the tribes uh, in the north uh, after having marched his troops through a bunch of military disasters, and they had enough of him, and they killed him and one of the people who was conspirators who killed him his own troops was a man named Maximinius Thrax which is a great name
2: yeah
0: and he was like there's legends of who this guy was he he was like just horrifying to the romans cuz like they've had like sort of romanized foreigners be emperors before but this guy was not romanized he was a dacian or thracian uh, which is considered more of a barbarian people And he himself was not of any noble lineage whatsoever. He was a commoner, basically. And he was a massive, brooding monster of a man. Like, even even as 60 years old, he was incredibly strong, incredibly tall, incredibly, like, brutal. And, like, you can actually see his bust. uh, He became emperor, so he had his own, uh, like, specific bust, so, like, a portrait, sort of. And he looks like a mean, old general, like, that will, like, burn your villages to the ground kind of deal. (laughs) And he's the one who takes over. So he immediately starts a civil war because, like, for one thing, he killed the emperor. For another, he is terrifying to so many of them. So that's, like, what sort of sets off this series of turnovers of leadership. Um, uh, interestingly, um, at one point during these turnovers, uh, a guy named Philip the Arab took over, who was himself an actual Arab. And we might get to him in a future episode. It might be an interesting. But he only he was only in charge for four or five years. But this was, like... Four or five years of general peace, sort of. Um, eventually, we get to this guy named Valerian. So, that, like, we there's a very fast turnover. Like, it's lasting five years is a long time at this point. Like, one general gets killed after another, after emperor gets killed after another, after another. Um, eventually, we get this guy named uh, Valerian, who looks like he's about to put, who's about to put an end to these attacks and stuff, especially from the uh, the Parth, uh, sorry, the uh, Sassanians. And he's trying to uh, basically push the Iranians back out of their territory. So at a place called Edessa, which is now modern day Urfa in Turkey. So like at Urfa, what ends up happening is it's a complete disaster. The emperor of the Romans is not defeated or killed. He is captured, captured in battle and made to be, I think the sources say that he was basically a footstool to the Shah of Iran. And, uh, and he died sometime after that, uh, according to some of the source, sources, killed in the same way that Crassus was, uh, by molten gold down the, the throat or whatever, but that might just be a trope of Roman writers. Regardless, basically the emperor of Rome isn't dead, he's captured. What do you do? You can't declare a new emperor. No, I'll tell you one thing that's, that's hella embarrassing, I'll tell you that. Exactly, and the Roman army of the east, something like 60,000 soldiers on that's a disaster that's a I, crisis that's right a there. crisis right there and the the parthians are sorry the the, uh, the Sasanians are having a field day just sweeping up city after city conquering looting taking back uh slaves uh the weird thing about the iranians is they they take slaves quote unquote and then they'd like free them and they would become like new cities in back in iran it's weird what do you mean by that like, they would take the people and bring them back to Iran and like not make them like slaves, yeah. but they would make them like uh, new citizens in new towns and stuff.
1: Yeah, I heard there's like this Sasanian tradition of kings picking out the most beautiful woman from each conquered province <laughs> as like a concubine in their palace. And then. Um...
0: Not what I meant, but uh, that's an interesting one.
1: <laughs> no, yeah, that's what I actually. It ties in. It's, sure. it's 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 kind of um, it's going to lead to the story of the the, the Lachmid queen princess, but that's at another yeah another episode.
0: So as I was discussing before, uh, what ends up happening is this is happening at the same time as Germanic invasions and a major plague called the Plague of uh, Cyprian. Cyprian, I'm not sure. Anyways, uh, so a major plague, all of which happens in the 250s and finally in 260. This major battle at Dedessa happens, and it's a complete disaster This was the world Zenobia was brought up in she was born in I think 250 something or 245 and She grew up with these rolling disasters like she grew she was born at the beginning of this and just year after year it gets worse and worse and um, For Palmyra this is a major issue because their wealth comes from being partly from being this semi-independent city that can like control trade And if everything is conquered by the Iranians, they're not like a a province on the edge of the world anymore, that like the edge of two empires. Now they're going to be conquered by the Sasanians. So either they have to throw down with them or fight for Rome.
1: Which, uh, which it's kind of a difficult choice to make. I mean, especially a city like that kind of thrives on peace, right? Because that's what brings in the mullah. That's what brings, yeah, exactly. That's what brings in the money.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, so we're going to pause and just explain her story exactly. So that, like that's the background of what ends up happening in the 13 years of our main story. But we're going to talk a bit about who Zenobia herself was. So as we discussed before, there's not that much knowledge about it today, but uh, she was a major figure of her time. Um, she had a lot of possible family connections to a bunch of very important dynasties like the Seleucids... And the Ptolemies of Egypt and the Severan Dynasty of Rome, like these major players, uh, but there's no clear genealogy of where her, like where the marriages end up. She even has a supposedly like a, like a connection to the Herodian Dynasty of of Israel, uh, of Judea, um, through its Armenian branch, supposedly. So like, there's a bunch of ways this could this could have worked out. Like you're talking about four of the most important dynasties of the time, you know um but most likely her uh she's named after her father so she her name in arabic is kind of like or her name in aramaic and arabic is sort of like daughter of zabai um uh, ben zabai or ba- yeah, ben zabai yeah. exactly and zabai in uh in arabic and possibly a different one in arabic and it,
1: in greek it's kind of understood to be like a
0: descendant of zeus as well
1: so there's there's a bunch of like she's, unc- she seems to be everywhere, like every exactly. divine, every divine origin, any good. Uh, but that could be partially because of their propaganda, because they had a huge propaganda campaign
0: when they ruled. That's Probably, why. yeah. Exactly.
1: She, probably, uh, you know, it, it makes me think maybe they were appealing to whatever, wherever they were throwing the propaganda. at. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, you know, to appeal to the Greeks, well, she's the daughter of Zeus. If you want to appeal to the to the Egyptians, well, she is a descendant of the Ptolemies.
0: Exactly. But it does seem very probable that her dynasty was Arab uh, in origin, at least. She, whether or not she spoke Arabic, that's uh, that's, a, that's unknown. Uh, she probably it probably wasn't her first language. Let's put it that way. Okay. Um, so, there's no statues of what she looked like. Like, uh, we ta- discussed, even Maximinius Thrax, who was there for like two years, he has a bust because he was the Roman Empire. And it's a very lifelife and expressive statue where you can actually tell wh- what this person looked like. Like, we know what Julius Caesar looks like, we've seen his face. Yeah. We don't know what she looks like. We only have accounts of her from the time. Uh, and we have a ta- accounts of her, like, uh, general. Uh, like, her, her general atmosphere, like, uh, for example, the Historia Augusta, uh, which is the main, uh, history of the late Roman emperors, and they have, like, a big chapter on this period of time, uh, like, the, it's the main, like, um, resource for historians, like a lot of the other ones we don't have. Uh, it describes her in detail, so, uh, I'll quote from it for a little bit, unless you would like to.
1: No, no it's okay. All right, all
0: right. Her face was dark and of a swarthy hue her eyes were black and powerful beyond the usual want her spirit divinely great and her beauty incredible so white were her teeth that many thought that she had pearls in place of them her voice was clear and like that of a man her sternness when necessity demanded was that of a tyrant her clemency when her sense of right called for it that of a good emperor generous with prudence she conserved her treasures beyond the want of women. She lived in regal pomp. It was rather in the manner of the Persians that she received worship and the manner of the Persian kings that she banqueted, but it was in the manner of the Roman emperor that she came forth in the public assemblies, wearing a helmet and girt with a purple fillet, which had gems hanging from the lower edge, while its center was fastened with the jewel called Choklis. used instead of the brooch worn by women and her arms were frequently bare she often drank with her generals though at other times she refrained and she drank too with the Persians and the Armenians but only for the purse the purpose of getting the better of them it's an interesting description other other sources describe her as something of a young Diana she had like a uh, from the time of her childhood, and she was married quite young, like 16, 15, sort of age, to her husband, who was probably in his 30s at that point, which was very common at that point in time. But, like, she bonded with him, supposedly, through their mutual love of hunting and, like, uh, sports and, you know, that sort of thing. It's, it's not necessarily a very feminine thing at the time, but it's a very, like virile kind of thing to be getting up to uh, it takes intelligence strength determination endurance all of that to become like a good hunter in in this time period but
1: this is also kind of her persona exactly she's kind of like this yeah it does it does it does take um I guess, masculine qualities to rebel against an empire, let's just say. Uh, as far as the ancient writers would put it, they, they, they definitely yeah. had that aspect. Like, her
0: her sounding like a man, I don't think she, like, had a deep, deep voice. It's just that she projected exactly, a sense yeah. of authority. Uh, she had this very, like, regal authority to her. She spoke uh, Coptic, Syriac, Latin, Greek. Uh, she had a fiery temper. She she was, above, above all things, like, well-balanced and... Uh, and uh, had a lot of, like, spunk to her, as you'd say. Like, she's, like, perfect for a Hollywood casting kind of deal. Uh, and, like, another author refers to her as, like, a young Diana, which is the goddess of hunt, I think. Um, she was, she's described with incredible beauty, uh, presented the image of an impe- uh, independent woman capable of forming any task of a competent ruler. Um, she was braver than her husband, according to the Historia Augusta in another part, they talk about it. Uh, her capabilities as a ruler were extreme, and uh, they impressed even her major opponent, who we'll get to at the end of the story, Emperor Aurelian. And he he considered it a shame that he had to uh, defeat her in this sense. That's like that's the kind of person she is. And
1: uh, I think it's a pretty good like image. It, there. it, it is, yeah. yeah. It's it's kind of like uh, she, I guess she was kind of seen like as a worthy opponent a little bit. Some 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 somebody that uh, the enemies would find. Exactly, and, and like
0: she's considered Respect, like, let's say, yeah. like her her husband is one of the great figures of Roman history. Uh, we'll, we'll get to him in a second, but she's considered his better in in a lot of ways. Even though she was younger, and you know, it's just like a more striking image almost. Um, and an interesting point is that Cleopatra, who she's often compared to, was never described by her contemporaries as any great beauty. So Cleopatra is described as brilliant, but she's not described as uh, beautiful in the same way. Like, she doesn't, like, it's only later authors who are like, oh, she must have been, like, gorgeous in order to seduce, uh, to seduce him, you know? Like, to seduce all these men. And really, really it was probably just political, uh, it was just power politics. Uh, regardless, um, to talk about how she bonded with her husband, uh, we kind of have to talk about who her husband was. And that was Odonathus. And we kind of get back to the history doing this. Um, there's this really good uh, description in the Historia Augusta. And remember, this is the official history of the Roman emperors. This is, has to be approved by the state, basically, at the time it was written. Uh, and uh, even though it might have been a different d- dynasty, they want to keep Rome like impressive, you know? Um, and here's what they say about Odonathus. Had not Odonathus, prince of the Palmarines, seized the imperial power after the capture of Valerian with the strength of the Roman state, when the, when the st- strength of the Roman state was exhausted, all would have been lost in the east. So that's what they're saying. So when the Sasanians are rampaging across, it really does look like they're just going to take it all over. Then they basically get ambushed by the forces of Palmyra, and he gathers together like this ragtag crew of like the retreating legionaries, his own like bodyguard, the imperial, the, the royal cavalry of the Palmarines, any peasants he picks up on the way, and like any garrisons who will join him. And he gathers together a sizable army because at this point in time it's hard to gather 30,000, 40,000 men anywhere, especially if you're not like the authority. He is not the governor. He just puts it all together as a ragtag group to basically pounce on the sasanians as they're going back to their home base with a bunch of loot and uh the way it's often described in um in like recounting of it is like they're marching through the dunes of the deserts and like the uh, the enemies like the palmarine forces just emerge out of the desert <laughs> and just you know but in reality the place where this happened was like in northern syria where it's like f- like it's hills, green and it's, it's green. fertile yeah, there's it's
1: water a, it's
0: it's not that green like it's a little bit more arid but it's not dunes you know it's like uh like, yeah, yeah. Like they're surprised, exactly. but they're not like, oh, there is like a dune and like some. Plus it's, eating. it's, it's
1: flatland.
0: Exactly. It's mostly flat. Yeah. And that's where the Palmarine cavalry really did it to the Sasanians. So like, again, it's sort of like this imagination of what happened, you know, like there's a YouTube video where they like describe it in the dunes fashion and it's really like really interesting, you know, but uh, it's not necessarily accurate. Uh, so at this point. He was in his 40s. He married Zenobia when he was in his 30s. She was probably late teens, 16 to 18 probably. Uh, When Shapur was ravaging the Empire of the East, uh, forcing city after city to pay tribute, uh, he was the one who led the the defense of the empire. And he really, really gave the Sasanians a good bloody nose in that one battle. And then again and again and again. And uh, eventually... He, and, and he declared himself for Rome he wasn't trying to break away he declared that he was fighting on behalf of Rome even
1: though he was technically like the de- leader
0: of an independent city yeah.
1: you know um, but I guess he saw that as um, kind of a way to gain favors from Rome it, it's also to try to maintain their position too Yeah,
0: like it's, it's a little bit hard to determine exactly what his purpose was because he, he didn't last too long but um, he put together a huge army of Palmyra, the Arab tribes, uh, Syrian conscripts, and the legionaries, and even some defectors from the Iranians. And he just blasted them all the way back to their capital, which is a little bit south of modern Baghdad, called Yeah, And he actually defeated them outside of the gates of their own capital city and tried to lay siege to the city. He was only turned away because a bunch of Germanic tribes in, uh, were invading Anatolia and he had to uh, respond to that because he was the only force and he was ordered by the Romans to do so. Otherwise, he could have very well have sacked the, the Persian capital, the Iranian capital. So all the while he's doing this, uh, he's gathering all these like awards and like titles from the Romans. like he's called Dux Romanorum, which means commander of the Romans. He's called Corrector Totius Orientis, the writer of the entire East. He uh, titled himself King of Kings of the East in order to really stick it to the Iranians because they call themselves the Shah and Shah, the, sh- the, the king. The sh- yeah. Exactly. And uh, he, again, marched on the city. Um, what's really interesting is actually outside of the capital, he managed to take the royal treasury and the harem. The, the, the harem. The harem. Yeah, no way. <laughs> so he cut all of uh, Shapur's concubines and wives. Although,
1: all those, all those, all those women that were talking that I was talking about. Um, exactly. So that they were getting from each province they conquered. Exactly. It must have I have d- been these.
0: I do not know if they got like ransom back or or if they just you know, um, how would I put this? Uh, they got like freed or whatever. I don't know what the story is there. Uh, there was no sourcing on that, but. That's a major embarrassment. Basically, his household was raided. That's basically what happened. So Shapur was thoroughly bloodied after this, and they had to break off uh, all all hostilities with Rome. And he became basically the de facto governor of much of Syria and, like, co-governor of a bunch of other areas, too. And he was um, considered this, like, very prestigious figure uh, in Roman history. And all the while, Zenobia is at his side doing everything with him doing all of the battles all of the politicking she's like his right hand throughout this and uh along with his first son who was not zenobia's uh son but uh a previous marriage from a previous marriage so he's got like this family around him that's uh, really helping him out throughout this process and building up palmyra's control and power uh On behalf of Rome in this sort of emergency capacity as a lot of the legions are dealing with Germanic invasions on the Danube closer to Italy, you know
1: But this this yeah, okay. Yeah closer to Italy. Yes, because I was gonna say like this sounds like a kind of a bad call when you pull out the one army that's ransacking your biggest enemy, but then again if the Germans were really close to the Roman capital It would make sense to say, "Okay, guys, stop what you're doing and come back from here."
0: And consider by this point, Gaul and Britannia have already broken away as empires. Yeah, because the Romans haven't been sending; they keep taking legions from the area, and allowing Germans to invade. So they're like, "Fuck, like screw this. We're gonna just, you know, control our own territory and defend ourselves." That's the level we're dealing with here. Like, it really seemed like the Roman Empire was gonna fall apart. Um, And all the while, this like major coup happens. Uh, with Odonathus and just as he's building out this control and defending the east and has fully uh, turned the Sasanians back to their own lands something happens he is killed and no one knows why it happened the main story is always a little bit suspect so I'm going to just explain this he, he gets killed along with his firstborn son Herodianus Herodianus yeah Herodianus In 267, so seven years into this process of like, governing and ruling, he gets killed. And all sources say that it was a relative of his, something of a cousin who killed him. And his, (laughs) uh, and possibly a nephew or a cousin of some sort, uh, along with his son Herodianus. Other than these basic facts, we have no clear perpetrator or motive or even a location where it happened. Just kind of like an idea that they were hunting at some point.
1: In each of these stories, like it's, it's like must have, must have seemed like I'm trying to make it sound like it was an accident.
0: It sounds like a bunch of like different rumors got muddled together or something. Like yeah. uh, so, there's like the idea that there's a Roman conspiracy that the uh, that uh, one of the uh, historians, a seventh century historian named John of Antioch, accused Gallienus, the Roman emperor of the time, of being behind the assassination there's no very clear evidence of this but it was made by the the case was made by this ancient uh, author uh,
1: 300 years later I'm guessing he's um, 400 years later rather I'm guessing he's making the case that maybe the Roman Emperor was getting was, was worried afraid because yeah. this guy is okay like this guy's actually a really competent guy he could come after me
0: exactly and uh, and so his like Empire later come out after him so it's not necessarily uh, Because Odonathus was building up his own, like, reputation and stuff, and it looked like he was going to... He might have tried to break away, so it's possible, but there's no real clear evidence, and sources of the time don't even mention it. Uh, Some guy named uh, Zosimus states that Odonathus was killed by conspirators near Emesa at a friend's birthday party without naming the killer. Like, that's, like, the weirdest of the stories, because it doesn't follow any of the other patterns. Um, Another 12th century historian named Zonoras attributed the crime to a nephew of Odonathus, but did not give a name. So all these different, like, these are different sources and different stories going off. But the main, uh, the main, like, theme of it, uh, especially from a guy named, uh, the guy Zonoras, was that it was sort of like a family feud. According to Zonoras, Odonathus's nephew misbehaved during a lion hunt, and he made uh, the first attack and killed uh, the animal to dismay, uh, to uh, Odonathus's dismay. Like, he was upset that his nephew uh, had, you know, broken procedure and killed the first animal, you know, over-eager. You know, it's, you know, you, it, should you wait, ki- yeah. it should be the king who kills first. It should be the first. king first, yeah. Exactly. And so he made him, uh, let me get this right, uh, he warned his nephew who ignored the warning and repeated the act twice more causing the king to deprive him of his horse a great insult in the he- east he made him walk like you don't get a horse anymore you have to walk now <laughs> you can't you can't keep uh, keep uh, breaking protocol. you gotta walk now it's like a huge insult
1: no it sounds like a very petty uh, yeah it's a pretty petty way of handling this
0: the nephew threatened Onanathus and was put in chains as a result so it's like it's escalating, like according to the story, it escalates. And Herodianus asked his father to forgive his cousin and request, and the request was granted. However, as the king was drinking, the nephew approached him with a sword and killed him along with Herodianus. The bodyguard immediately executed the nephew. That's the most complete story according uh, according to our sources. And, and bear in mind this is from the 12th century, so there's a lot of distance between it this still has a lot of cons- inconsistencies like it um,
1: other sources say he was killed more in Anatolia it wait but this story only said the one that you just mentioned it only it, it, it only alludes to the fact that um, he ended up executing his nephew no no uh, the bodyguard killed the nephew okay the bodyguard killed killed the nephew after the nephew had killed uh, killed Odenathus
0: and his son okay okay. So, like, uh, even, like, he killed his cousin who, you know, had, like, spoken up for him, too. Like, it's... This doesn't make sense. I know, it doesn't make as much sense. But then again, it could just be, like, one of those weird things that happens in history where it just doesn't make a lot of sense, but it just happened. Um, the Historia Augustus claims that a cousin uh, named Maonius killed him. We don't have a name from the other source, so maybe it was Maionius. Uh, According to Cinecellus... Uh, Odinathus was assassinated near Heraclea Pontiaca, which is up in Anatolia, and they don't name the assassin. Uh, uh, and he was killed, and it also says that the the assassin was killed by the bodyguard. So like a lot of the same pieces, but not never never like a full picture of the puzzle. You know, uh, another theory is that Zenobia had contracted this guy to kill her husband, her, her husband, and the and her, his firstborn son, who was not her son specifically. This is not very, like, she was accused in Historia Augustus of perhaps uh, conspiring with Maeonius to kill Herodianus, like the stepson. She could not accept that he was the heir to her husband instead of her own children. However, there's no suggestion that she was directly involved even in this source, which has a lot of motive to make her seem like the one who killed him, you know? Because Odinathus is a hero to the Romans... Zenobia is the bad guy, according to them. Like, the, a noble bad guy, but the bad guy who defied Rome, you know. So, it would make sense to, like, pin it on her. But then again, she kind of does... In this way, they make sense to have a motive, you know. Um, it, given the pro-Roman policy, it can be dismissed that they are... The, like, his, her husband's pro-Roman policy, it can be dismissed that she, like... That, like, they killed him. But at the same time she wouldn't have killed him because of his pro-roman policy cuz she continued that for another 3 years.
1: Yeah, but you know I can kind of see why she would do she would kill the the son if it's not her own son. Yeah.
0: I can see it but like it's it seems very convenient for the romans as well, you know? Like she takes over but like there there was never any like evidence of this connection. You know?
1: Yeah, yeah, oh. I can see that.
0: Another one is that he was contracted by Persian agents to kill uh, Odonathus, which makes a lot of sense in a lot of ways, you know. It does, yes. Yeah. But for
1: some reason, the theme of um, the nephew and the bodyguards killing killing the nephew seems to be recurring. So perhaps maybe the story is more along those lines, right?
0: Exactly. So. I, I think it's an interesting thing to break up, this sort of like murder mystery kind of thing, especially since it's a podcast. <laughs> it's a big, major theme in podcasts. But regardless, uh, Zenobia took over from her husband and continued on building this great kingdom of the East, which is what it eventually started to look like. Uh, so from 267 up until 273, she was the queen of the East. And she built around her something like a court of honor where she invited all the greatest minds of the Greek and Roman world, especially the ones who originated in Syria. And she started, like, um, encouraging them to, uh, to to use the Syriac language, the Aramaean language, to use the learning to, like, boost their own culture, the sort of multicultural mix. You know, like, it was a great moment in time where their culture was at the height, you know? Uh Odinathus had influenced local writers to uh, to write prophecies about uh, about his great deeds, uh, like the stories of his great deeds and prophecies that they backdate, you know, to to foretell of his coming, you know, like <laughs> as all great oh, uh, propagandists do. Um, a prophecy in the thirteenth uh, Sibylline Oracle, written after the events, uh, uh, prophesies reads: "Then shall come one who has uh, was sent by the sun." i.e Odinathus, a mighty and fearful lion breathing much flame then he with much shameless daring will destroy the greatest beast venomous fearful emitting a great deal of hisses Shapur.
1: this this is supposed to be an oracle that was written before
0: but it was actually written but ab- it was actually exactly written after. it's oh. like uh, the great beast the hisses you know yeah, yeah. is the shah you know so, like, the great enemy of, of, the, of the country is the Iranians at this point. They, they're getting real short shrift here. Um, so she continued this tradition and, like, hiring poets to do this, artists. She uh, consorted with one of the great uh, Neoplatonists of the time. So, like, there's the school of Plato, you know, the great philosophers. One of his uh, descending philosophers is uh, some uh, guy named Cassius Longinus, Despite the name, he is of Syrian ancestry. He comes from Emesa, and he comes to be one of her great uh, advisors. And uh, uh, he he studied philosophy, making himself thoroughly familiar with Plato's works. He commented on them, which would continue for many, many generations into the Islamic period. Like One of the favorite things of educated um, um, Arab and Islamic um, uh, scholars of the time was to continue this tradition of commentating on the great masters of ancient Greece. And he he was a big bridge to that Uh, one of his great contributions was that he eventually was blamed for um, uh, he encouraged her to shake off Roman rule and become an independent queen and uh, for which he was blamed and later executed Uh, she also had several generals most prominent of whom was uh, a guy named Zabdas who was like the genius of her army the great cavalry leader we, we shared on the Facebook page a couple pictures of what this looked like like think of like the most heavily armored Roman knights These were like the crack troops of Palmyra in the Eastern Empire like the Persians had some the Romans had some but the best ones were the Palmarines. They had these Like the horses had skirts of like chain armor There was like chain armor all over the body every inch of the horse and the rider was completely armored and they were expert
1: Lancers and this and they is were like the spear tip of an army. And this is considered more, um, kind of more armored, more they professional, were, if you like, than the, than the Roman army. The Romans had some, but uh, this period
0: saw a transition from Roman like legionaries into using more cavalry. And the crack cavalry were these okay. cataphracts, who are famous amongst uh, history nerds as like the original knights, you know. Like you could train a guy to be perfect if you can if you can make sure that they're not going to die on that horse, you know, okay. and they can break through almost anything. The only thing that would counter cataphract is another cataphract in the, in the, in a full charge, you know. Um, so she continued to defend the east against the Iranian incursions with this great army, with these great generals, with these great advisors. Her propaganda machine began to spin together this sort of. Image of what a Syrian queen would look like, this sort of Eastern and Western melange. and uh, she built this loyalty in Syria to her personal, uh, her person itself, and as the great defender of the territory, and she promoted the culture of the region. It became clear that she was sort of moving away from Rome, doing this. Um, even with a, Ar- but even with Aurelian, who would later take over in 270, she still wanted to try to come to an agreement with the Romans where she was able to keep control over her territories. But it looked increasingly like they were running out of time to try to like keep their independence and all that they had gained.
1: And I think this is probably where Rome th- feels threatened the most.
0: Exactly. But she has still has time and the ability to strike. And she strikes in 270. She sends an army to defeat the 50,000 troops that were left in Egypt, and she takes over Egypt and starts marching into Anatolia, bringing those provinces under their control. Now, these are very distinctly not Syrian provinces, so she's really going beyond where her power base is and really expanding, trying to take as much territory as possible. She's going on the offensive. She did go on the offensive, and Egypt is by far the most important province outside of Italy. Because it has most of the grain supply for the eastern provinces, it is extremely rich. It has the trade routes to the to the Red Sea. It is by far the most the single most important province, and she like snatches it away from them, and she takes both Antioch and Alexandria, which are number two and number three of the cities of of
1: the Roman Empire. The only one Ooh. bigger is Rome. No, and the Romans are probably no. This is this is actually a big power power grab right there. Exactly probably weren't happy about this at all.
0: Exactly. And, um, she tried to expand her realm into Mesopotamia at the beginning, but really, this is where she really built out her power base. Uh, she tried to maintain rep- friendly relations till this point, but...
1: I think it's too late at this point. Man. Yeah,
0: exactly. Uh, but the Romans were in the middle of, like, fighting, uh, fighting the Ro- the Germans, so she thought she had her-, her last chance. Uh, and they were fighting a civil war. But... While she was taking over Egypt, Aurelian defeated his opponents and was preparing for a counterattack. The Roman Emperor prior to to Aurelian had sent, uh, um, his name was Claudius II Gothicus, you know, because everybody's got a name, Uh, he sent an admiral to try to retake Egypt but failed to do so. So for the next two or three years, she ruled Egypt. And from there, she started to conquer into Anatolia as well. And in uh, August of 271, Zenobia's army raised her up and proclaimed her the most illustrious and pious queen. in the, In the same year, she declared uh, her son uh, by Adonathus, uh Augustus, or emperor, uh, or the senior emperor, and moved removed the image of the current emperor of Rome from Alexandria's uh, circulation.
1: This is this is quite insulting, actually.
0: Yeah, no, she's printing her own coins at this point. That's how you know
1: you're the victor. That's how you know, exactly. <laughs> and she's trying to negotiate something with Rome. At this point, Rome is just pissed off. There's no way that they're gonna... Sh- and she declares herself Augusta, or Empress, and Regina,
0: which is Queen. So she is both the Queen and the Empress Ooh. of the East. At her height, she ruled the great imperial cities of Antioch and Alexandria, as I mentioned, um, all of Egypt, Syria, and half of Anatolia. Okay. Which is modern Turkey. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's a big chunk of land, and she looks like she's about to ch- carve off everything east, uh, everything that Rome has in Egypt and Asia.
1: Yet she's still trying to negotiate something. Ah, oh, you know, because she's not going to take over they, the Romans. She just wants to make sure that they like don't come back for it. You know? Yeah, but even then, I don't think they would. This is this just unacceptable so, from from Roman from Roman perspective.
0: Exactly, and she's sort of like dining in the Persian style. She's she's uh, wearing the greatest clothing. She's becoming the most regal of queens. She's beautiful everywhere she goes. People love her. She's a major figure, and she's managing to put together a real empire here. Um, well, the Romans lucked out, as I mentioned with this guy, Aurelian, he, he earned himself in only five years as emperor between, I think, uh, 270 and, uh, or 271 and 276, uh, he becomes known as Aurelian Restutor Orbis, the restorer of the world. He restores the world to the way it should be, you know, like Simba or something. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Aurelian was talented, vigorous. He was a skilled commander and drove back the barbarians who had threatened Italy. He rebuilt the walls of Rome and slew all disloyal senators. As far as Zenobia uh, could, could build her empire, Rome revitalized its former power in the Mediterranean. So while she was building out, she, he really rebuilt the core of Rome. He started building, like in only five, five years, he's building city, city walls everywhere. The, the current walls of Rome are his construction. The Aurelian walls. Because for a long time, they didn't need to build new walls. Like the city had grown past it, you know, yeah. it had their old walls. So it was basically an open city. Now that they've been attacked and all this, they need defenses, not just on the frontiers, but inside the empire. And he's the one who be- begins this uh, this process. Um, uh, basically, they're, they're can and he launches the main campaign to retake the east. Later on, he would retake the west as well. Um, and defeat the the Gallic Empire out there but he he basically crosses the uh, the Bosphorus into Asia with 150,000 men and sends another 50,000 by sea to take back Egypt which
1: happens like that this is way too over she she can't she she invaded Egypt with I believe what seventy thousand troops exactly so she has something 80,000. okay and him. this and she used seventy thousand troops to go ahead and invade Egypt as well as Anatolia exactly he's he's, he's coming, coming out with, with everything with more than double than that
0: exactly um, he uh, marches into Anatolia and city after city after city just surrenders back to him because they they realize that oh with a force like this Rome's back. Um, he, they meet resistance right before they're about to enter Syria, which is where they actually fight the battles. Yeah. Uh, and one city tries to, rise, a city called, uh, small one called Tiana. I hope that I'm pronouncing that out. The only city in Anatolia to defy him. When, and he declared that when this city falls, I will not even leave the, uh, one dog alive. I will leave not one dog alive to say, I'm going to kill all of you guys. That's a flowery language. Mm. It's the language
1: of the emperors uh, uh, yeah
0: the siege throughout the process of the siege he he manages to get them to surrender and it cools his temper he manages to like you know I'm not gonna I'm not just gonna kill a bunch of Roman citizens just because I, I was angry when they resisted at first uh, because they they eventually came with clemency. Uh, his troops were annoyed because they were ready to sack a city and make themselves rich and they hadn't fought to do so like, they, like the rules of war were you make us fight you we're going to loot you wait we have to fight and we can't loot? what is this nonsense? so they get upset with him and and he they basically bring this complaint to him like let us loot the city and he's like ah, you, and he, he, they bring up you said we could not we'll kill all the dogs too and he's like I did say that well, then go kill the dogs. And they thought it was fu- a funny joke, so they were like, yeah, that sounds fun. It's a different time. Let's put it that it way. It is, yeah. I-, I bring in this anecdote well, because it's interesting. <laughs> he's right, you know, you're trying to keep his word. Yeah, exactly. So he's trying to keep his word. Um, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, okay. Anyways, getting back to the important stuff. They basically retake Antioch and right outside the city, they, they have like a small cavalry battle in which like both sides like blunt each other but retreat the palmyrene army the syrian army marches all the way back to emesa which is that city we mentioned earlier in the episode uh which is like kind of like the sister city of palmyra yeah and right outside in the major place it's a flat land out there it's beautiful countryside it's mostly flat and rolling hills and it's out there where the main fight happens um and there's like a, a historia augusta um a quote to help explain this: um, the the cavalry was very key to this. Septimius Zabda, the general who commanded in the the battle near Antioch, after abandoning abandoning the city to Aurelian, fell back to the south along the Orontes to Emissa, modern day homes When the great battle of the war was fought, Zenobia's troops, seventy thousand strong, greatly outnumbered the Romans. A lie and her uh, and her cavalry drove the roman horse from the field but her infantry was badly defeated by aurelian the defeated remnants of the queen's army took refuge in the city but the hostility of the townsfolk forced her to retreat across the desert to palmyra 70 miles distance sorry 90 miles distance leaving behind a great amount of treasure there's a couple inaccuracies there according to Historia augusta emesa turned on her probably didn't happen like that Uh, and described Zenobia's army as greatly outnumbering the Romans which is not true the Romans uh, at least matched them on the field and they had many more reserves to come at them with so basically the the cavalry was undefeated but what ended up happening was Aurelian's uh, infantry was strong enough to defeat the the um, the Palmyrines and help their cavalry defeat the Palmyrene cavalry and they fought a bitter last stand there. It's not mentioned in the Historia Augusta because, well, it's better that they look. The Romans look good. They don't want to give like a, a great story to the enemy, you know. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, following her defeat, uh, she sent a, uh, She was received. Uh, she got a letter from Aurelian basically saying surrender now, and Palmyra will be spared, and your life as well. On receiving this letter, Zenobia responded with more pride and insolence than uh, befitted her fortunes, as the sources say. Uh, I suppose, with a view to inspire fear for a copy of her letter, too, I have inserted, uh, as they put it, basically, they inserted uh, her smack talking Aurelian, and uh, this is what she says, supposedly. And she wrote this in Aramaean and Syriac. She spoke Greek, and she could write in Greek, but she made a point of writing it in Syriac. This is as an insult. Somewhat, yes. Like, she was not a good uh, speaker of Latin, but she could have written it in Greek, which she, the, uh, the enemies would have understood, yeah. but he made, she made a point of doing this. From Zenobia, Queen of the East, to Aurelian Augustus, none save yourself has ever uh, demanded by letter what you now demand. Whatever must be accomplished in matters of war must be done by valor alone. You demanded you demand my submission as though you were not aware that Cleopatra herself preferred to die a queen rather than remain alive however high her rank We shall not la- lack uh, We shall not lack reinforcements from Persia Which we are even now expecting on our side are the Saracen's are on our side too the Armenians The brigands of Syria have defeated your army Aurelian what more n- uh, need I say? If those forces then which are expected from every side shall arrive, you will for of, sure, of a surety lay aside that arrogance with which you now command my surrender, as though victorious on every side. Basically, she's saying all my allies are coming to me. Yeah. We're going to beat you in the next one.
1: Didn't play out that way.
0: And I'm not sure what she's referring to, the brigands of Syria. They might have been, amb- like, the Roman army might have been ambushed at one point and, like, had a bloody nose somewhere. That might be what they're referring to. Uh, and it was dictated by Zenobia herself, uh, and she wrote it in, Syria, in, in Syrian, and they had to translate it into Greek for Aurelian to understand. Uh, that's supposedly the case, but it does seem like a different account, so it might have been an accurate letter. Um, so basically what ends up happening at this point is she tries to escape and she's captured on her way back to Palmyra. Or she was in Palmyra and she was trying to escape the city while the Romans were laying siege to it. There's two different versions. Um uh, the more accurate one is probably she was in the city, tried to slip out to, to get an army together to relieve the city, it was probably her uh, her motive. And
1: got caught on the way.
0: Exactly. Like the Romans say that she was working with the Sasanians. Maybe seems unlikely. They probably wouldn't have been that eager to help her, probably given all not, the bloody huh? noses. But it's good propaganda to say that she was working with the enemy. You know, like she's not your, you know, yeah. favorite
1: queen. Not to be trusted. Exactly.
0: Um, so she's shown to be like insolent towards uh, Aurelian. Um, at this point, she is. There's conflicting accounts of what ends up happening to her. Uh, some say she starved herself to death. Some say she died on the crossing back to the Bosphorus when uh, Aurelian wanted to take her as like a hostage to take her on uh, a triumph. Well, the triumph being when the Romans had like, a big parade after a great victory. A yeah. Roman emperors especially loved to do that, where they would have a great big uh, victory parade where they would um, uh, bring all the booty and all the soldiers and all the rest and they have a great big parade throughout the city and at the end... In Caesar's time, you would kill the uh, enemy general if you could. In the Roman Empire times, they usually like to pretend to be like More generous, so, uh, generous, and like forgive them and then make them like live in isolation on a villa somewhere. And that's supposedly that's the official story from the Historia Augusta is that she was given clemency by Aurelian and she got to live uh, in a nice house next to where the Emperor Hadrian's house had been. On the Tiber River, that's supposedly the story. Um, and another version is that she was executed shortly after that because he wanted to eliminate her, but without the negative press.
1: That sounds a lot more likely, in but my opinion.
0: Other versions say that she was uh, that the woman who showed up there was not actually her. That they were because like, it was a stand-in. They, they quietly killed her and then put in a replacement. Mm, I don't
1: know. I don't know about that one.
0: I know. A- again, this is why sourcing is uh, so interesting. Cause... Speculations. Exactly. You could write any kind of story you wanted, Hollywood. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> For sure, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, getting to the end of this, uh, what ends up happening to Palmyra is the city itself is spared. Only like the ringleaders who were supporting uh, Zenobia, you know, Zabdas, and uh, Cassius, they were killed. Executed, as long, along with a lot of the other uh, major figures of the city. But they, um, some other figures of the city, tried to rise in rebellion one year after they were put down by Aurelian. So he comes back almost immediately, while he's on campaign somewhere else, to just total them. He forced the entire citizenry to abandon the city and then resettled it later
1: okay so okay yeah because i mean i guess they were in the spirit of uh, you can call it the spirit of zenobia hasn't left the city
0: yeah oh and i forgot to mention that uh in the triumph of aurelian along with zenobia uh being there quote unquote there was petricus her son and as well a bunch of amazonian tribes like female warriors so it seems like this was a very like pageantry kind of thing. It was a very fake kind of thing. Like, yeah. Amazons were not part of this. But it would have played well to, like, the great Roman emperor defeating a woman. Well, that doesn't sound that impressive unless you say she was basically an Amazon and you have Amazons in your in your triumph. You know, the war, ancient Greek warrior women. Yeah, yeah. You know? So, that's essentially the story of Zenobia along with a few other epithets and... Um, other quotes that we could get into about like how great she was and how much of a great uh, victory it was for Aurelian to defeat her, but really, I think it's it's helpful to just think about like the image that she portrays more than the story itself. Like, what what's your impression of this character at this point after me spending like an hour explaining it to? You? Honestly, she's uh, she
1: fits right into the theme of a knight. She's a great, uh, a great character. She, 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 that's, that's all I can say, really. I mean, to, to say that she is strong, she is brave, she's the kind of woman who, uh, well, I mean, she's a badass.
0: Yeah. And that's the way she's portrayed in Syrian history. And like, um, we're going to put this at the, the tail end of the episode, but, uh, there's like plays in Syria about her like great history, you know, like. Uh, they make it more of an Arab story than even it was at the time, you know, like they make her like the Arab queen of like ancient past, you know, but
1: even though she was probably only Arab by origin, but that's it.
0: Exactly. You know? But you know, things get, uh, maybe like, for example, um, uh, <laughs> take Boudicca, for example, Boudica is like the famous, uh, warrior woman of Britannia. Like she's the one who tried to kick the Romans out of her country too. The modern English who live where she lived are just the descendants of like Germanic people. They're not the descendants of the Britons that you know yeah. came later. Yeah. Like, like they came before. You know that the, that uh, that Boudica would have uh, been, been part, familiar of, yeah. with. So they actually replaced those people. So it's kind of weird, you know. Like there's sort of like this.
1: Yeah, but I guess it's just you. you... Nonetheless, that wherever you go, that land kind of becomes a part of your heritage, right? right. So it it just it happens all over the world.
2: Yeah.
1: I mean it's especially with arab history where either some people who either either some people some 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 people who are probably of arab descent move into a non-arab land and then they claim that land as their history or vice versa. Yeah. Arabized people claim arabs as their own history. It's just It's just a mishmash of things it's this
0: weird like like we're talking about like identity and legacy and there's like this weird like mismatch with it like is she Arab well kind of but she's important to Syrian history like these authors that talk about her in these later centuries that we kind of mentioned are all Syrian authors and she became like a major figure for their culture for Syriac culture
1: she's more important to Syria than she is to the Arabs but because Syria is an like Houston said, Syria is a major Arab country, then she becomes relevant to Arab history.
0: And she makes one of the great uh, one of the great Arab uh, annals of history is something called the History of the Prophets and Kings by uh, by Al-Tabari. And he we're going to get into him in later centuries. He was a he he wrote it in the early 10th century about the great history of the Arab people up until that point, or the history of the Middle East up until that point. And she's a major figure in there. Although his accuracy is a little bit... Mm. I, I don't know if he was uh, unable to get certain sources or what, but like it's, it's not as accurate, but it's more romanticized history, at least in this period of time. He's much better for later periods. But she makes this as part... He makes it as part of that history. And a lot of tribes in Syria declare themselves descended from... Zenobia herself so in terms of her role as a a form of identity for the people who live there to this day even in Tadmor in in Palmyra she is the great figure and part of that legacy is that she's on the money of Syria she's on the Syrian pound she is uh, on the coast of Syria there is a major statue of her like, overlooking the Mediterranean, uh, like a great uh, queen of the East, you know?
1: And this is, all, uh, this is all because she actually stood up, I guess. She stood up against the Romans. She, she didn't back down. Exactly. Right? And that has a lot of resonance for a
0: country that, like, throughout its history, resisted uh, colonial occupation.
1: Yeah, 100%. Yeah.
0: And uh, they, they were never quiet about uh, knuckling under um, the, the British or the French or anyone, really. They fought back and that is a big part of it Uh, Syria is in a lot of ways a divided country, but there's certain figures that bring the country together and she's one of them and uh, She fits into a lot of these figures like that like uh, we mentioned Boudicca But we also mentioned in a previous episode Arminius in Germany uh, Who fought against the Romans Boudicca who fought against the Romans Cleopatra in Egypt who fought against the Romans Versus Guderik's, you know Asterix and Obelix. Guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, they, he was. The, he's a French figure of national importance. Hannibal for the Tunisians. Exactly. Um, yeah. I I could go on and on. Like, uh, even like a guy named Calgacus, which I mentioned because it's fun in Scotland. And what they, what that incident really provided us was uh, one of the great uh, quotes in history. Probably apocryphal. Probably not what he actually said, but quoting Algacus, uh, Calgacus, sorry tacitus the great historian uh writes that he said of the romans they plunder they slaughter and they steal this they falsely name empire where they make a wasteland they call it peace wow and this is a good quote to sort of like say that like this sort of like image of empires, like they are these great civilization bringers, but really they bring destruction. Like Palmyra was destroyed by the Romans, later rebuilt, but it was a lesser form. The influence of these empires is very, like, like you can tell throughout the story that there's a lot of good Roman influences here, like Syria becomes more cultured, blah, blah, blah. But it was through their independence that they were able to become rich and strong and powerful. When they started to get too uppity, let's say, they had to be crushed.
1: Yeah, for sure. And these th- these all bring out th- the same themes of just rebellion—not not rebellion, but resistance. Resistance against the empire. Right, and this 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 ties in a little bit to, na- to 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 nationalist identity, actually, where these figures are just brought up. I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned about um, the figures. I call them Asterix and Obelix. For those yeah. who don't know, it's a it's 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 a nice little cartoon they play around here in Quebec during the Christmas times and it's about these two uh, Gaulish warriors in this village in Gaul who are fighting the Roman Empire Julius Caesar defying Julius Caesar and this is kind of a uh, French pride right there right
0: exactly even though the French language which they're so proud of too is a Latin language yeah straight up and that influence seems stronger but in terms of their identity, they still feel Gallic, you know.
1: Yeah, and this is this is Z- Zenobia is kind of the same thing for Syria. Yeah,
0: I um, I'm just gonna briefly mention uh, some of our best sources. Like uh, the best source I found on like Roman Empire in the Arab world would be probably Rome in the East: uh, Transformation of an Empire by Warwick Ball, and he explains how like the Romans sort of become Eastern like over time, like they become like. The Roman Empire in the East comes to be one thing rather than like that's the faraway place. The faraway place is actually Northern Europe. The East becomes Rome. And you see yeah. that as like Rome later becomes resettled in the East. And that's the main base of power there. Like even Italy becomes less Roman weirdly it, enough.
1: It lasted longer than the West.
0: Exactly. And uh, I think his story is a good example of that. And he has good uh, stuff on like the Roman-Persian War, the Roman-Iranian Wars. Uh, The Crisis of the Third Century, and a little bit about Zenobia too, so if anybody's interested in this time period, I would really recommend that source. That being said, uh, our uh, ending song today is going to be an interesting one. It is actually just kind of a trailer for what appears to be a Syrian play. It's in Arabic, obviously. glorifying the legend of zenobia in the form of a play in the form of art so i hope you guys enjoy especially those who speak a little bit arabic this will be an interesting uh, little uh, teaser for a show that you're probably never going to get access to <laughs> and uh hope you hope you guys enjoy the show enjoy uh, the play absolutely like and share on facebook uh we're going to be posting up soon we will have
1: uh our website ready soon Exactly. Uh, yeah. Just, just, uh, just adding some finishing touches, and we're gonna start posting everything on the website, as well as Spotify, Anchor, Apple Podcast, Facebook, all the rest, all the rest of the stuff. So enjoy the song, my
2: friends. I yeah. can تضحكين لكل من ترين تضحكين إلا أنا فكلما رأيتني تعبسين ألست مثل الناس يا سينة الناس أنت شغل الله ربنا وأنا شغلة حددين فوق المعمول سكر معمال السكر سكر عطول خديك يا حمدان سكر فوق المعمول سكر معمال السكر سكر عطول خديك يا حمدان